You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. As I'm recording this, I've just wrapped up a year-long journey to film festivals around the world with our movie Nightmare Cinema. I've gone from Argentina to the Netherlands to Mexico to Brazil to Canada to France to Ireland to Spain to Denmark and all over the United States. In the world of independent film, in particular independent horror, it's getting more and more difficult to get your film in front of an audience. The ability of getting any independent movies into theaters has become increasingly rare. The local Cineplex is playing host to huge theme park ride event attractions that cost hundreds of millions of dollars, so there's not much room for the little guys. And the independent art house screens are disappearing. Film festivals have not only become more and more independent in getting your film attention, but also, for most of the films that play them, the only places they can be seen on the big screen. The devotion horror fans have to their our genre is deep and passionate, and they support these cinema orgies in ways that no other genres do. If not for the festivals, movies like The Witch, Hereditary, Autopsy of Jane Doe, Revenge, The Perfection, and so many others might never have found a home on theatrical screens. We were very fortunate to get a theatrical release, though it is a limited one, simultaneous with VOD. One stop on the Global Nightmare Cinema Tour was a great celebratory festival in beautiful Lucca, Italy. Joe Dante was with me there, and we were able to talk to an appreciative and enthusiastic audience right after we screened the film about Joe's career with the maestro of Gremlins, The Howling, The Burbs, and so many other classics. And we'll share that with you right after this. Fangoria Magazine is back and better than ever in a deluxe 100-page quarterly edition. Each issue includes set visits, deep dives, new discoveries, and minimal ads, all printed on collectible-grade paper stock that reimagines the classic magazine for a 2019 audience. You'll see familiar names like Michael Gingold and Tony Timpone, and you'll see bylines that will leave your jaw on the floor, like Barbara Crampton. And the best part, it's print only, just like the old days. Go to Fangoria.com to subscribe today. Here's something that should be of interest to the listeners of Postmortem. Shudder has a new original podcast, Visitations with Elijah Wood and Daniel Noah. Elijah Wood and Daniel Noah are two of the partners behind the award-winning genre production company SpectreVision, responsible for the Sundance hits A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night and Mandy, just to name a couple. The two producers have always been fascinated by the dark allure of horror, and on Visitations, their first podcast, they explore the exhilarating, entertaining, and sometimes even therapeutic experience of facing one's fears in art. Each episode, Elijah and Daniel travel to the home or workshop of one of their favorite creators in the genre community and beyond. Visiting with filmmaker Taika Waititi, director and star of What We Do in the Shadows and Thor Ragnarok. Mike Flanagan, writer-director of Netflix's The Haunting of Hill House and the upcoming Shining sequel, Dr. Sleep. Anna Lily Amarpour, writer-director of A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night and The Bad Batch. Rick and Morty co-creator Dan Harmon, musician Flying Lotus, fashion designers Kate and Laura Malavi of Rodart, and more. Listen in on intimate conversations with these exciting artists as they explore the ways in which they've turned their deepest, darkest fears into art. Season one of Shudder's original podcast, Visitations, is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Shudder.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Okay, I'm very excited because the time is finally here. 
Coming to theaters and on demand this Friday, June 21st, Nightmare Cinema brings together five masters of horror. That's what it says here. I say it humbly because I'm one of the filmmakers. To tell bone-chilling stories to keep your summer scary. The film critics are calling it a surreal slip down a rabbit hole to hell and gruesome fun. And it was named one of the best horror films so far this year by Entertainment Weekly. And they should know, right? From the teams at Cranked Up Films and Shudder, don't miss Nightmare Cinema this Friday. Be sure to meet us in theaters Friday night for the 8 p.m. show at the Arena Cine Lounge on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood with a Q&A immediately following with me, Joe Dante, Alejandro Brugues, and Ryuhei Kitamura. Also this Saturday, June 22nd at the Frida Theater in Santa Ana, California, for the 7.30 p.m. show with Q&A immediately following with me, Alejandro Brugues, and Ryuhei Kitamura. Visit crankedupfilms.com slash nightmarecinema for more information. See you there. And if you can't make these special screenings, see it in a cinema, in your city, or on demand on Apple TV, Amazon, Vudu, Google Play, and all the usual places you find your film fixes. I'm Mick Garris, and we are live at the Luca Film Festival in Luca, Italy, with Postmortem. And our special guest tonight is here in Italy with me, where we did the Italian premiere of Nightmare Cinema a couple days ago, the creator of Gremlins, Gremlins 2, um, The Howling, Piranha, Matinee, The Burbs, the great filmmaker, Joe Dante. We, uh, we can augment that reaction in post. <laughs> yes, okay. Yeah, we don't need it. So, so, Joe, where did it start for you, the love of cinema? I uh, was a child of the 1950s, and we didn't have a television. Um, this is uh, the old story. He's so old, he doesn't... Re- don't re- anyway. He looks so much younger. He looks so much that. younger than he really is. Um, we had uh, no, no TV, we had radio. And I did listen to the radio a lot. Uh, but all my friends had television. And I would go over to my friends' houses to see TV. Uh, and I had, I, I, the movies were a distant, in, in my distant future. Uh, the first movie I saw, my, I think my, my aunts took me to see the um, first release of Peter Pan, the Disney cartoon in 1953 or 52, whenever it came out. And, uh, and also Snow White is often the uh, first picture that anybody remembers seeing because um, parents always take kids to see Disney movies, even though they're so terrifying that they give them nightmares. But that may be part of why uh, I and many people in my generation gravitated toward scary movies. was because the first movies that we saw, uh, while nominally for children, were actually fairy tale movies. And as we all know, fairy tales began in a much more horrific fashion than they sort of were watered, watered down into. But Disney seemed to take delight in uh, playing up the more horrific aspects of, of fairy tales. And, um, I mean, the the, uh, the transformation sequence in Pinocchio, where the kid turns into a donkey, is was actually a big influence on The Howling, uh, because it's, it's just it's a terrific uh, transformation sequence. And so... I just found I just fell into loving movies. I, I wanted to be a cartoonist, and I was mostly interested in comic books, um, and I, particularly the Carl Barks Donald Duck comic books. Uh, and my parents wouldn't let me have horror comics because uh, they were considered there, were, there was a, uh, a nationwide campaign at the time against comic books led BBC by DC comics like Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror, and Tales from the Crypt. And there was a uh, a, a doctor named um, Dr. Frederick Wortham who authored uh, a bunch of books about the pernicious effects of comic books and how uh, they were turning our whole nation into juvenile delinquents. And, and, and Exhibit A was the EC comic horror movie, horror comics. And um, so I was never allowed to have them. But one day, uh, while walking the dog, I found outside our house in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in a gutter a beat-up, used copy of one of the horror comics. And I snuck it home and I took it and read it under my covers 
and uh, it was a it was a it was a guy crawling back from a grave and coming out of the and it, and it was more graphic than anything I had ever seen, and it really did give me nightmares. I, I was so unsettled by the images in this comic book that I started to think, well, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe maybe these really are not good things to have. But they, but there there was something about. You know, when you're a kid, you don't think you're ever going to die, so death is sort of abstract to you. But the idea of coming back from the dead and being a ghost and rotting flesh and all that stuff, uh, for some reason, appeals to kids. And uh, I think that ev eventually leads to a fascination with movies that scare you and movies with dark themes. And, um, and, and it, of course, being a child of the, uh, of the, the atomic age, you know, when I finally did start going to the movies, I got a steady diet of giant insects and, uh, you know, mutations and things that were caused by atomic power, and we were taught to be afraid of it, and uh, we had dead duck and cover drills where they, they, they kept telling us the Russians were going to bomb us, and so it was a very paranoid period, and I guess that was a great time to get interested in horror movies. Well, that leads us into matinee. Matinee is your telling of what it was like during that childhood, during the the nuclear bomb scare, all of this stuff taking place in Florida. How did that come to be, and how did it morph over the the pre-production into what the movie was? Well, after I had made uh, Gremlins 2, I was still on the Warner Brothers lot, and uh, a writer came to me with this uh, script called Matinee. And it was intriguing, but it was not the same movie that we ended up making. It was uh, This movie was about a group of people who used to go to a certain movie theater, and now it's closing and becoming a video store. And they all gather around to sort of remember what it was like to go to the movies there. And it's all larded with a lot of fantasy and uh, the imaginings that the projectionist is a vampire and that the usher is a monster. Um, and it, and it, it, was, it, was a, it was a cute idea, but nobody wanted to make it. And... Uh, but we didn't really want to throw it away because there was this movie within the movie called Mant, uh, half man, half ant, all terror, and uh, it was a, it was a it was a homage to the the B movies that I had seen when I when I was growing up, and I, I it, it sort of left me thinking, well, you know, there must be a way to still make this picture, so we we hired a couple of other writers at a var at various times, and they brought in certain other elements. One one element was the idea of a horror movie actor coming to the to the local theater and to promote his his movie and that didn't really fly very well but we hired an, uh, a writer named Charlie Haas and he came up with the idea of setting the movie during the Cuban Missile Crisis and having the uh, the local theater hosting the the, the uh, sneak preview of the new horror movie by uh, famous horror director um, uh, Lawrence Woolsey, played by John Goodman, who is modeled basically on William Castle and has it makes gimmick movies, movies where stuff comes out at you from the screen and um, and and, and the things get thrown at the audience and the theater rumbles and all that stuff uh, and. For some reason, Universal let us make this movie, uh, which of course went on to be not very, very famous. Or you know, it opened. Uh, they, it, it was really a more famous than successful. Perhaps it was an independent kind of movie, but but being allowed by a big studio to make it meant that it had to open wide, and it was really more of a Miramax kind of movie where you open it in a couple of small places and you try to get some reviews and and you know bring the audience along. But in this case, they just dumped it. Uh, and it, you know, didn't really set the world on fire. But over the years, a, a number of people have um, uh, have found it. And even in its initial release, it was kind of nice to see parents bringing their kids uh, to see this movie to show them what it was like when mommy and daddy used to go to the movies when there was only one screen. Uh, because you know, in, in today's uh, in today's movie market, this is an unusual theater that we're in here in, in Luca because it's a single screen theater and it's modeled very much on the kind of theaters that I grew up in and the kind of theater that we see in Matinee, which we had to build in Florida. And it also has a balcony, which figures very strongly in the climax of Matinee. And, and very few of the uh, movies that people, uh, movie theaters that people frequent to see movies now today fit that, fit that model. One of the most gleeful moments of filmmaking is the 20-minute version of Mant itself. Obviously, you weren't going to show that much of the movie, but tell me about the whole process of making it and what was behind that. 
Well, we needed to have enough film to project, uh, to shoot the stuff. We had to, we had to build the, the interior of the theater. And we shot it in, um, in, in, uh, at the Universal Studios in, in Orlando. And, uh, and some of it in, a, in a, a place called Cocoa Beach, which is near Cape Canaveral. In fact, we actually saw a, a rocket launch at Cape Canaveral while we were making the movie. Um, and so the first thing we shot was this movie Mant, which is in black and white. And um, it's about a guy who get, he's, uh, he just, he's, when he goes to the dentist and he gets x-rayed, he discovers that he's got a lot of radiation and uh, he's turned into a giant ant. He's got a huge ant head, very much like in The Fly. Uh, and um, we hired a, several people who used to be in those kind of movies. Uh, 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 a guy named Robert Cornthwaite, who was the a mad doctor in the original Thing. Um, Kevin McCarthy played a general. Um, uh, Dick Miller played a guy who is an actor in the movie, but then really shows up in the real story. Um, and it when it was. Um, it was a lot of fun to shoot, and, it, and we did it in a, a very believable way in that we didn't want to make the movie within the movie look stupid because then it would make the kids in our movie who like those kind of movies look stupid. And so we, we made the movie as well as you would make it as, as a sort of a high-end B-picture in the, in, the, in the early 60s. But with the technology of that era, everything was handmade. Everything. Oh, everything was handmade. And, and, and the, the giant ant was actually, you know, it was not bad. You know, it was, it was, really, it was pretty good. And because and, he grows really big and he climbs up buildings and stuff. And, 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 you know, some of the movies from the 50s, they use real grasshoppers climbing up, you know, photographs of buildings, which isn't exactly uh, convincing. Uh, and this, is, this one is a step above that. So um, it's, and it's, and also the dialogue is very funny. Uh, and much of it is actual real dialogue from movies like The Amazing Colossal Man and um, The Giant Claw and some other movies where we actually stole the dialogue verbatim and put it in our movie and it's hilarious, but uh, you know, but it, in the original movies it was, uh, it was supposed to be straight. Well, I would love to get a little insight into the, the relationship between director and writer, particularly in the case of, of Matinee where it started with somebody else's idea. You had a concept drawn from your own history and childhood and Charlie Haas having another take, and, and how that metamorphosis occurred and what kind of guidance you gave. Well, if you're developing a script and you're going from writer to writer, which I don't actually recommend. I mean, it's, it's, ideally, you have one writer all, all the way through the whole thing. But um, we hired a guy named Ed Naha to come in and uh, sort of rework the first version, and he's the guy who came up with the idea of the horror movie host coming. But then that morphed into the movie producer coming. Uh, and when, when Charlie came up with the uh, Cuban Missile thing, I leapt at it because I was the same age as the kids in the movie. So that was Charlie's idea, or was it your idea? I uh, honestly can't remember, but I, but I do know that I, I identified with it completely because the lead character in the picture was the same age as I was during the missile crisis. And since none of you were there uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, you, and count yourself lucky, um, it, it, was the, it was the weekend where we all thought there would be no Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or ever, no more school, um, nothing, because the world was literally pitched to end that weekend. Uh, and we, uh, we grew up in a time when if an airplane flew over, we thought there was a bomb in it. And so everybody was tense. It was a very tense time. And, and politically, it was a very tense time because it was the Cold War. Uh, and uh, people were on edge all the time. And so... The, Lawrence Woolsey, the character in the movie, figures that this is a great time to open a horror movie because everybody's already horrified, and it'll, and this picture will be you know do very well, uh, and and so the movie is sort of about f fear and how it helps us conquer how movie fear helps us conquer real fear, um, and it's also scrupulously accurate to the period. I mean, everything in that picture happened, uh, and and in, in, we shot it in Key West where. The, it was just only a couple of miles from Cuba. And so uh, we, we got some military cooperation and we, we studied the plans of what they had done because they took um, actual uh, guns and, and, and artillery and stuff and put it on the beach because they, it, they figured that they were going to have to maybe shoot the, the Russians or something who were going to invade us. Uh, and so it's all very accurate. Um, and uh, it's, it, it, over the years, it's, it's struck a nerve. I mean, there are a lot of people who really 
uh, understand that this is the way it really was. And the people who were there have all, all said to me, "This is this is very accurate." Uh, but it's it's it, but it's a funny movie. I mean, it's entertaining. It's about kids and it's about trying to get laid and going to the movies, which is like they're, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, and it was um, you know it, it was a lot of fun to make. And um, you know it it uh, I, I can't say it was disappointing because I always knew. I always knew it wouldn't be a success, but I was very glad that they let me make it. Well, one of the hallmarks of a Joe Dante film is that they are very subversive. They're socially and politically aware and have something to say, but they don't preach at you. You sneak it in, sometimes more overtly than others, but maybe the first time it was really powerfully noticeable was maybe Gremlins 2. Well, Piranha, frankly. Piranha actually is, a, you know, John Sayles wrote Piranha, and uh, he in, inserted a whole lot of political. Uh, the, the, in Piranha, the idea is that there has been a, an army test site that uh, has been overrun uh, with these mutated fish that were created to um, uh, be put into the rivers in Vietnam and, uh, and help us win the war. Um, and, and, and so the, the whole idea of piranha, which is mainly people trying to get to a summer camp before the piranhas do and warn them, uh, is that um, the idea of the government using your tax dollars for, for things. Your tax dollars at work, one of the characters actually says. Uh, and, and so it was, it was a comment. It was a comment on, the, on, it was a Vietnam era movie and it was a comment on the war. Uh, and, and it's easy to do that in science fiction and horror films because the surface of those films is really what the audience comes to see and anything else is, is extra. When, I got, when it came time for me to make Homecoming for Masters of Horror, it's a completely different deal because it's not subversive. It's just all out in front. It's, it's a propaganda movie. Uh, Sam Hamm, the writer, and I were, were disgusted with the fact that the media was cheerleading this, this dumb war. Uh, and uh, so we did this story about, uh, uh, you know, soldiers from the Iraq war who come back as zombies to vote out the president that sent them there. And um, when we ran it in the Turin Film Festival um, as one of the Masters of Horror episodes, it got this amazing reception. I mean, it, it was, it was an almost embarrassing 10-minute ovation for Ten this movie. 10-minute standing ovation, and but I was there. I, ca was... I contend that it was not because it's such a great movie. It was because they were, they were so amazed that there were any Americans who hadn't drunk the Kool-Aid and weren't actually all, you know, trying to, you know, promote the war. Uh, Don't and, sell yourself short. Well, it's a great. Yeah, but the, the problem is, look, it, it, movies. We'd love to make movies that say something, and we'd love to try to change people's minds. But the fact is that if movies could really change people's minds, we would have all disarmed after Doctor Strange Love came out, <laughs> and, that, and that's never going to happen. So, uh, you know, we we do our best. We try to make our statements, and we hope that somebody, you know, is is sympathetic. But. Uh, you know, when you see things happening around you and you have the, uh, the luxury of being able to actually, you know, produce entertainment that people will see, it almost seems like a duty to, to say what's in your heart and to say what you think is important and to try to say, look, I have this opportunity to tell you something that you may not hear from somewhere else. Were you brought up in a socially and politically aware family situation? Not, not really. It was the 50s. Nobody was aware of anything. <laughs> uh, it, it was, uh, my parents were Republicans, and uh, I didn't really know what that meant, but I do remember uh, going around, they gave me a little can uh, to go around the neighborhood and get money for Eisenhower. And, uh, I like and I, I, I knocked on one of my neighbors, and I'm, I'm like, you know, what, eight years old. And I, I'm, I knocked on one of my neighbor's door, and I, I hold that thing. I said, would you like to donate? And they said, oh, no, I'm sorry. We're Democrats. We're, we're for Adlai Stevenson. Well, I was shocked. It was my eighth cousin. There were other people who, who, who weren't going to vote for, for the people that my family were going <laughs> to vote for. I mean, it was a rude awakening. So I, they, I wouldn't exactly call them. Uh, the only thing about my family was that they, my mother and father always decided to vote for the same person because they, they figured if they voted against each other, they would cancel each other's vote out. And True so enough. They would, so one would talk the other into voting for the other person, but it was always a Republican. Whoever was more passionate. Yeah. Um, what was school like? You were at a time of great protest and, and political action and activity. Were you involved at that time? 
Well, not in not in elementary school. In elementary no, I mean when you were in college. Well, in el elementary school, that I was in a uh, it, it was an experimental period, and they were they were they were always testing new things, and so they would uh, somebody would come and they'd say, well, "This is the SRA reading laboratory," and they would give you these exercises that were on little little cards, and then you would have to uh, write them out very quickly, and then there was a machine, a fast reading machine, that would project pieces of uh, lines of, 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 of print, and, and they, would, they would press the button, and it would only give you like one or two words at a time, and it would go like this, and you would have to try to catch up with it and be able to write an essay after it's over about what it was about. Now, I mean, I know I was only a kid, but this struck me as one of the stupidest <laughs> ideas that you could, I mean, who, but where do you, you're not learning anything. It's like, it's, it's just trying to promote some kind of technology. Anyway, but so coming from that background, when I was in college, of course, it was the Vietnam era, and uh, it was extremely um, political. And uh, there were bians, I don't know, probably none of you will remember bians, but the idea was that everybody would just go and be. You know, you'd go to a park and you'd, you'd be. At love ends. Bring balloons and love ends. And of course, there was, there was free love and there was no STDs or very few. Uh, there was pre-AIDS. It was, it was, a, it was a, everybody said, boy, you got really lucky, you guys. Well, you'd be surprised how few people really got laid. Were your college years when you first uh, uh, became aware that maybe you wanted to become a filmmaker? No, I wanted to be a cartoonist. And I, I wanted to... Um, I, I, did, I drew my own comic books when I was a kid, and I sort of thought that, you know, it would be a fun thing to be a cartoonist until one day I woke up and I said, I, I looked at the newspaper and they had all these comic strips and each one of them had a new joke. And I thought, geez, these guys have to come up with a new joke every day? Yeah, that sounds hard, I don't think I could do that. So I went to uh, the Philadelphia College of Art, um, which was the only place I could get in because my math scores were so low. Uh, and um, they said, well, okay, you can, you can come in, you can do the, the, the first year course, which was, you know, basic stuff. And, uh, and then at the end I said, well, they said, what do you want to be? And I said, well, I'll be a cartoonist. And they said, well, sorry, that's, that's not our art. We don't teach that. Uh, so the only thing that was left was I could, I could major in film. But this was like 1964 or 5, and the film department consisted of uh, two 16-millimeter cameras and 30 kids. And, uh, and the only thing that was really any use out of it was the film appreciation class where they would run older movies for you. Uh, but when it came time to make your movie, everybody, of course, would procrastinate and not do it until the week before it was due. And then there was like murder to try to get the camera and shoot the stuff and get it you know, processed and then cut it. And you guys don't realize how lucky you have it. I mean, you, you, all you have to do is shoot it on your phone or your computer and you can cut it. You can put music on it. You can do all that stuff. We, we couldn't do that. We had, to, we had to go through these steps. Agonizing and, steps. And, it was, and it, it, was, it was, I mean, every movie that was made had to go through all these steps. And it, and it was very time consuming and expensive. Uh, and now it's like it's, everything is push button. Um, we've, we've lost something because now films aren't shot on, uh, movies aren't shot on film, and therefore there's nothing to preserve because they, they live digitally. And in the future, uh, a, a, very no, a very high number of uh, films and television shows from the 80s and, uh, and the 90s, which were never, it were shot on film but edited on tape, or maybe never shot on film at all, um, are now only existing on certain inch tapes that then have to be remastered when a new technology comes, like 4K. And there's no way that some of the stuff that I did in the, in the, in the, in the 90s, like, for, like Erie, Indiana, which is a series that I, I was involved with, uh, is a good series, but the only thing that exists on it are these sort of fuzzy DVDs because they can't do anything with it. They can never, you know, uh, it, whereas if they had film, you go back to the negative and you remaster it and you can make it look great. And so I'm a, I'm a big believer on, on in if not shooting on film, then at least preserving everything on film. And it's very hard to do if you don't have a negative. What were the influences during college? What, what were you watching then? Uh, and uh, well, even before that, you're talking about the cartoonists. Did you want to do things like your hero, Carl Barks? Uh, yeah, do, I had, like Carl, I had Carl Barks like stuff. characters. I had Rover Cat and Duffy Dog and Eager Beaver and all, you know, all these stuff. They were very much like the cartoons in the Disney. So not political cartoons. 
No, totally not political. It was always adventure stuff, and it was um, I, I cribbed shamelessly from other comics and, and redrew them as my own. And they all ended up at my grandmother's house, and whenever anybody came over, she'd pull them out and say, oh, look, isn't he talented? You know, it was really embarrassing. Um, but, but as far as the influences, I mean, it was all... I went to the movies every Saturday, and I saw, you know, all the Saturday matinees, which usually consisted of um, an older picture, or a Tarzan picture, or a Roy Rogers picture. Uh, I saw The Wizard of Oz there. Uh, in, in science fiction movies, whatever was playing that was suitable for kids would be run along with 10 cartoons. And it was great, and you got in for 25 cents. Uh, the first boy and girl in line got in free, so everybody would line up hours before. And then if, you, if the movie was boring, or full of adults, which was the same thing, uh, you would just spend your time, you know, with a, you bring your flashlight and you'd go and look at the, uh, go through the halls and look for money that people have dropped so you can go and, and, and get money in the machine because all the candy was from machines. Uh, it, was, it was a great period. It was a wonderful time. And I, and I really liked movies, but I, we also had television. Um, and my favorite show was the Disneyland TV show because I was a Disney freak. And because I had had polio, uh, I, um, I was in the hospital for all, almost all of 1954. And so I missed a whole lot of stuff. And, uh, and when I came home, we, we, our TV had broken down or something, and my parents would carry me um, across a couple of streets to some neighbor's house so I could watch the Disneyland TV show. And then eventually they felt so guilty about it that they bought a new TV. Well, it's fascinating that you and Martin Scorsese and other people who are voracious consumers of film and film trivia and film knowledge, uh, part of that may have been due to being unhealthy as kids or going through illness as you did with poet. Yeah, because there wasn't really much to do. I mean, you could read, you could do stamps. Bible stamps were very popular. Uh, you could do stamp albums, you could do things like that. But I mean, if you're in a bed and you can't get up, there's really not much you can do. Uh, and and um, so I, I really relished the when I finally could get around. I really relished the idea of walking to the movies, um, and uh, I I so I didn't intend to be a movie director. I I fell into it because I wanted to go out to California, and work for Roger Corman in the trailer department, making trailers, and um, I got a chance to direct a movie, uh, a co-direct a movie with a friend of mine. And it was the, uh, my, my friends had made a bet that it would be the cheapest movie that had ever been made at that company. And it was the only way we could, he would liberate us from doing trailers. So we made this picture in 10 days. Uh, he was currently making three girl pictures, teachers, nurses, uh, and girls who would take their clothes off and get into trouble. And they were always comedies and they were always made very cheaply. And so we said, well, what if we do actresses? And then we could use all the footage from all these movies that we've been cutting trailers for you know, science fiction movies and war pictures and all that, and we can we can put them in our movie, and that'll then we have to do expensive you know uh, action scenes, and we'll dress our actors like the people in the movie, and we'll just cut together this picture entirely based on the footage that's available to us. And so we made this movie called Hollywood Boulevard, the street where starlets are made, uh, and it was about a movie company making um, low-budget movies, and miracle we call it pictures. Miracle Pictures. If it's a good picture, it's a miracle. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, it, it didn't exactly set the world on fire, but it got us uh, some valuable experience. And then we went back to making more trailers, and eventually I got a chance to, Alan Arkish, my, my friend who was doing trailers, really got a chance to do Rock and Roll High School, and I got the other project, which was uh, Piranha, which was a Jaws ripoff that was, like, I thought a little too late for Jaws, but hey, it was, it was a movie. Um, and after I did that and it was successful, uh, Roger had often said, if you do two movies for me that are good, you won't have to work for me anymore. Uh, and it was true. Uh, I started getting calls from other people uh, to make movies, and one of whom was Dino De Laurentiis, who, uh, the great Italian producer, who was now currently living in L.A., and uh, he had seen Piranha, and he had, a, he had made a picture called Orca, which was a whale movie and in Italy. It had been, been very successful, and so he wanted to make a sequel. So he's, he called me on the phone. He said, Joey, Joey, we'll make a picture together. We'll make a Orca too. Orca too is a kill everybody. He's a comma killer. He's a comma kill everybody. So, okay, fine. So I, I go to talk to, to Dino, and he, he's got this script where the, the, the whale is killing people on land and leaving seaweed 
uh, and it's not a comedy. Uh, yet. And I ultimately, I mean, this would have been a big break for me because he was a big producer, but I ultimately talked him out of making it because it was just such a terrible idea. Well, somebody else who was impressed by Piranha and who hired you to do the next movie because Piranha was the best ripoff of Jaws was Steven Spielberg. And I'd love to talk about the Amblin years a little bit because not only did you do Gremlins and Gremlins 2, but you did amazing stories, you did small soldiers, you did inner space, and this was kind of the peak of Amblin's production years and a huge change in your life. Tell me what the difference was when you went from Piranha to Gremlins, or well, you went the Howling first. Well, the, well, Howling was a separate deal. I was I was doing a supposed to do a picture called Jaws Three People Zero at Universal, and it was going to be the next Jaws movie. Uh, but it was the National Lampoon and uh, Zanuck and Brown who had made the Jaws movie, and the National Lampoon people wanted an R-rated movie, and the Universal people wanted a PG movie. And they couldn't decide what kind of picture they wanted to make. And I was just this kid who had been brought in. And I, they, they handed me my storyboards. They were already drawn. I had, like, nothing to do but sit around and listen to these guys argue. Uh, and it looked to me like the picture was going to fall apart. And my friend Mike Fennell, who had worked with me on some other pictures, uh, called me from AFCO Embassy and said, we've got this werewolf movie called The Howling, and they're getting rid of the director. Think you want to do a werewolf movie? Uh, and I said, well, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think I can leave this. This is a big studio movie. I don't think I can just walk out on it. Um, so I went to a friend of mine who was a studio executive, a junior studio executive, who had said to me when I first came there, he said, you know, this, this studio movie business is really complicated and tough, and I, you know, I, I just want you to know, if you have any problems or any questions, you know, come to me because I can, I can sort it out for you. So I, I great, okay. So I, I decided to go to him and say, so what's the story? What's this Jaws 3 thing? Is this going to happen? What's the, what's the deal? I can't talk about it. I said, well, what do you mean you can't talk about it? I can't talk about it. I'm sorry. I can't talk about it. You can't talk about it? You said I was going to go. I can't talk about it. Sorry. So I said, fuck that. I'm, I'm, so I did the other picture. Uh, and um, and it, was, it was fun. AFCO Embassy was a company that was... Uh, had, had, they had distributed The Graduate. I mean, it was a big company. But uh, they were currently on a kick of doing uh, low-budget horror films, some of them made in Canada. And, uh, John Carpenter, David Cronenberg, Joe Dante. Had John Carpenter and David Cronenberg and, uh, you know, and, uh, and uh, the other guy, David Schmoller uh, from... Um, the, from the, Tourist the, Trap. Tourist Trap. Well, and uh, Don Coscarelli's and Don Coscarelli. Yeah. So it, we, it was like a little nascent group. It was, it was kind of like New World a little bit, but... Um, uh, but there was up. more money. There was more money. Uh, not a lot of money, but more money. And, um, and the, the guy who had head of the company, Bob Ramey, who had worked with me uh, when I was wor working at Corman's, um, was a nice guy. And the great thing about him was he had a really short attention span. And so you'd be working on the picture, and he'd come in, and he'd open the door, and he'd say, so guys, how's it going? And you'd say, well, you know, actually, we have, great. Just keep it up. And he'd go away. So it was wonderful best working job, for him. It was wonderful boss. working for him. So we got to make the picture, and it turned out pretty well. And uh, the D. Wallace, who was in the movie, was hired by Steven Spielberg to play E.T.'s mom. Uh, and, I, and I discovered uh, one day at my cockroach-infested office uh, in, in Hollywood, uh, a script had arrived uh, for me from Steven Spielberg, which I immediately assumed had come to the wrong address. And it was the first script of Gremlins. And because I had been making these low-budget horror films... He was starting out Amblin, and he wanted to make a low-budget horror film as his first picture. And so he sent me the script of Gremlins, which not only was it much more gruesome than the movie that got made, but it was also uh, a movie that it looked like you couldn't make it for $1.98. It had, all, it had the, all these monsters in it, and it was like, how are you going to do that for no money? Um, so eventually Warner Brothers came in, and, 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 and it became a studio movie. But in the meantime, while that was happening, I was asked to do the Twilight Zone movie. Uh, which was John Landis and Steven Spielberg uh, were going to do um, a feature film version of The Twilight Zone. And uh, they said, well, why don't you, you come in and you can do one. And then George Miller visited one day, and Steven was, you know, uh, sometimes just jumps at anything, said, well, let's have George do one. If and you're they, in front of him at the right time. They had, to, they had to go to him and say, no more people, <laughs> no more, don't, don't invite any more people to do the movie. Um, and so I, I got to make, um, because there was an accident on the movie early on, 
the Warner Brothers people were very afraid of the picture. They didn't really want to have much to do with it, but they still wanted to make it because it was a Steven Spielberg movie. And so they left George and I completely alone uh, to do our episodes. And we thought, boy, this is a pretty good deal. Here we are at this big studio. Uh, we got all this equipment, all these people, and they're leaving us completely alone. This is the greatest thing ever. This studio filmmaking is wonderful. Well, little did we know. <laughs> then you woke up. In, well, we made our next picture. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that, that was an anomaly. That was an unusual situation that d does not usually happen. But, but back to the Twilight Zone before we leave that, that really combined your, your talents as a cartoonist and your interest. I mean, Gremlins has a lot of Warner Brothers cartoon influence, but this was so vastly animated movie as live action? Well, this was, this was because they, the studio insisted that the Twilight Zone movie be made up of remakes of episodes of the television show. And I thought this was a terrible idea because I said, this, this is a beloved television show or you wouldn't be making this movie. People know these episodes and they're all dependent on O'Henry twists at the end. So why would you want to make remake episodes where the audience immediately knows where it's going? And they said, no, that's what we want to do. So I figured the only way around that was to take an episode and go back to the original source novel or short story uh, and, and try to reinterpret it in a way that the audience wouldn't notice until at least the middle which episode it was a remake of. So there, the episode I did was called It's a Good Life and it was the one where uh, Billy Mummy is living on a farm and he's got these magical powers and he can make people, he can wish them into the cornfield and he can turn them into jack-in-the-boxes, he can do whatever he wants. Because everybody's terrified of him and they're always being obsequious and telling him how wonderful he is. And it was really a wonderful episode. Um, and, and, I, I, and it was daunting because it was like, you know, I, I, I have to do something completely different. So luckily Richard Matheson, who was one of the original writers on The Twilight Zone, uh, was assigned to my episode and we came up with a new way of doing this magical kid thing uh, by turning him into a cartoon freak so that when he picks up this school teacher lady and takes her to his house, which is like, almost looks like an animated house, and he goes inside, uh, there are all these people in there who he's keeping trapped, people from his life, who he keeps trapped in this cartoon world and they can't leave. And so we were able to structure the entire episode around the clips from Warner Brothers cartoons that, they, that we owned and all the music from the Warner Brothers cartoons, which is pretty specific. Um, and it turned out to be uh, a very offbeat studio movie. And when you combined it with George Miller's episode, which is a remake of the Gremlin on the Wing um, story, uh, which was the most thrilling set I've ever been on in the sense that it was, it was a real airplane hanging in a, uh, in a soundstage with wind and a, and a guy in a monster suit and, uh, and it, was, it, was, it was really great and, and George did a wonderful job with it. Anyway, when the picture came out, he and I ended up getting all the kudos and John and Stephen didn't. So, um, and they were the producers. And they were the producers too. But it was good for both, both of us and, and, um, and that's when George did his next picture which the Warner Brothers gave him a terrible time with. Uh, and then I did Gremlins which I can't say they gave me a terrible time because there was always Steven Spielberg in between me and the studio. Uh, he was your buffer. He's the buffer and that was the great thing about working at Amblin was that you were, you were making a studio movie but you were making it under the umbrella of Steven Spielberg and his producers, Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall, and they were, they were there to help you and protect you uh, and to try to get you to make at least the movie you wanted to make up to the point of the preview. And unlike most uh, previews, an Amblin picture would preview in a finished version. It would be cut, it would be uh, timed, it would have real music on it that's gonna be in the movie, uh, and it would look like a finished picture. Most previews were work prints with, with scratches and, and crayon marks on them and, uh, and temp music, and they looked very rough. Uh, this was not the case. So, so with, with Gremlins, we ended up taking it out uh, as a preview, and it was a phenomenon, an unexpected phenomenon, because the studio all along had thought of Gremlins as sort of the thing that we're going to let Steven do so that he'll stay on the lot. <laughs> uh, and um, so... And it was a pretty low budget for a studio. No, it was $11 million, which yeah. is not a lot of money, but it was certainly a lot of money to me. I mean, it was like 11 times the biggest budget I ever had. <laughs> uh, and uh, it, it, was, it was a difficult movie to make because we didn't have a lot of backing from the studio. Um, and we were inventing the technology as we went along because nobody had ever made a puppet movie on that scale. Um, and so of course, if we had CGI, 
today, we could still make it the same way, but we could get rid of the puppeteers. We wouldn't have to put them under the ground. We wouldn't have to put them behind walls and behind chairs and try to hide the rods and the manipulation and all that stuff. Take after take after take. Take after take. And it was it was a grueling movie because you, we had to explain, was it, is it better when the gremlins are shot in fast motion or slow motion or, or whatever? I mean, the, the, after the initial shoot, we closed down and then spent another month and a half just shooting gremlins, which was maddening. I mean, it was like... You see gremlins in your sleep. I mean, it was it was horrible, uh, but in the end, the picture was a tremendous success, and uh, it was it cemented my ability to continue to make movies, which is a good thing. This is the only movie that I ever made that made enough money for me to actually ever get money back. So, um, so I've always been grateful to it for that. Well, when years later you were asked to do Gremlins too. No, I was asked to do Gremlins too immediately. Oh, it was, but it like didn't Like the happen. weekend after it opened, they, well, we got to make another one of these. Yes. You know, and I was like, no, I can't do it. I can't, I can't, no more gremlins, I can't do it. Um, and so I, I said no, and they uh, didn't give up. They, they hired a bunch of writers and came up with I, gremlins go to Las Vegas and grum, you know, whatever they could think of. But because they didn't really like or understand the original movie, uh, they couldn't figure out how to duplicate it. So eventually, they, after years of failure, they came back to me and said, look, if you, if you will make this picture for us, uh, we will let you do anything you want. Mm. Which, you know, that's not, a, no not an offer that you get very often. And, uh, and so, uh, and my favorite, one of my favorite comedies is Hell's a Poppin', which is a movie where you never know what's going to happen and it breaks the fourth wall and makes you, remind you that you're watching a movie. And uh, I thought, well, I'm going to do it like that. And I'm going to make a movie that where you can never tell what's going to happen because it's so crazy. And um, so we did. We made that. And it was people, uh, people liked it, but it was supposed to come out on Memorial Day. And then, uh, and, the, and TV ads were running uh, for this picture opening on Memorial Day. And suddenly, the Warner Brothers people got worried about Dick Tracy, which is Warren Beatty's movie, which is going to open a couple of months later. And they, the, the, the tracking was telling them that it was going to make more money than Batman, which was their biggest hit. And so they thought, well, we can't let that happen. So let's take the Gremlins movie and let's move it back two months and we'll knock it off. We'll knock off uh, Dick Tracy with this thing. And so people who saw the TV spots went, well, where's the movie? It didn't open. So then two, week, two, two months later, they saw the TV spots again. They said, wait, didn't that picture already play? So it didn't, Haven't I seen that already? Yeah, yeah, didn't I see that? Is that the first one again? Um, anyway, so it, it, didn't, it didn't do particularly well. Uh, and it was a very expensive, it was five or six times was, as much as the first It was three one. times as much. Oh, three times, it was, okay. Yeah, it was, it was 30 million, 32 million. Ah, okay. So uh, instead of 11 million. But, uh, but it was, it was a, a fun movie. It's, it's a crazy movie. It's got a character who was modeled after then Donald Trump, who at the time was a real estate magnate who was kind of a tabloid figure that everybody sort of made fun of. Um, and John, we hired an actor named John Glover who played him. He was originally supposed to be the villain, and John was so funny and so likable in his naivete that he sort of morphed into this sort of likable villain, <laughs> uh, which, which is particularly anti-Trumpian. Um, so uh, anything I may have had to do with the raising the fortunes of Donald Trump, I hereby apologize. <laughs> so had enough time gone by that when you were back on the stage with all these puppets, which were way more complicated than the first ones, of regretting, oh shit, this again. No, I had, I had so much help. I mean, we had Albert Whitlock came out of retirement to help us do mat shots where we could take groups of gremlins and move them so we didn't have to hire he 100 famous, puppeteers. We only had to have 25. He had famously done Hitchcock's mat no, paintings. No, he was great. He was one of the great mat painters of all time. Uh, and, um, and you had Rick Baker this time, right? And this than time, Chris we, 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 the original gremlins were done by a guy named Chris Wallace who had gone off to be a director. And so Chris, we, I tried to get Rick Baker. Uh, involved, but he was loath to use the original designs because he thought, well, what, what is there for me to do but copy these designs? And so we came up with a subplot about a genetics laboratory in this big Trump Tower-like building that the movie takes place in, uh, where Christopher Lee is this mad scientist and he is working with um, all sorts of stuff that turns animals into strange things. And so they're, all the different gremlins that come out of it are different types of gremlins. They're all different designs. There's a girl gremlin, there's an electric gremlin, there's a, 
a whole bunch of different kind of gremlins, and, and, and Rick was able to design all of those things, and so that made him happy, so, so it was great. And, there, and every single one of those characters is currently still being merchandised by Warner Brothers with these figures that are made in Japan that are actually really nice. So you often have creature work in your shows. When you did Amazing Stories, the Greeble was created by Rob Botin, who had done The Howling for you, and inside was Don McLeod, who was TC in The Howling. Uh, that's true, and uh, the, um, the episode, I, I did an earlier episode called Boo, but the, the one that I did that Mick wrote was um, called The Greeble, and it was about a girl, a woman who throws away her little kid's storybook. Uh, I thought personally it worked better with comic books, but it's a storybook. Uh, and uh, and the, the, the creature from the storybook comes back in real life and uh, into her life, and he's this giant, goofy monster that Rob Bottin built. Uh, this episode was originally going to be directed by Stephen, uh, starring Whoopi Goldberg, and for whatever reason, that didn't happen. And so they asked him, since Rob was working on it and, and, and had worked, spent a lot of time on it, and I had, and had worked with me, they asked me to come in and do it. And so uh, I worked with Rob. It, it, it was the most expensive episode of Amazing Stories ever. And that's saying something. It and that was a really expensive show, but it cost as much as two episodes of Amazing Stories because when you work with a Rob Bottin kind of monster. And schedule. <laughs> and schedule with all of the people involved, just like Gremlins, all these people on wires that have to be hidden places. And, and a monster that has to, has to get his mouth to move, you've got five people working at. Uh, it's very time consuming. And so uh, it took like a long time to do. Uh, and ha we had Haley Mills instead of uh, Whoopi Goldberg, which is certainly <laughs> the, the other side of Whoopi Goldberg. <laughs> That's um, for sure. And she was very charming. Uh, and it was uh, it was fun. It was a fun episode. But um, I and I, it, my my all my time at Amblin was was really great. I mean, it, it, there was so much support. Uh, they, the, it was a filmmaker friendly place. And uh, they were, you got the feeling they were on your side. It wasn't like working for other studios where you think they're trying to undercut you or they're trying to make you do things that you don't want to do or that they've changed their mind since the time they hired you about the movie they want and now it's, you've agreed to do this, but now they want you to do that. You didn't get any of that in Amblin. You got, and, 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 and you didn't have to work with Steven personally all the time, but he was always there and he was always the last word on you know, uh, any designs or that had to be approved or whatever. And he, he was an asset. Yeah. And he was an asset. And he would, leave you, he would leave you alone to do what you wanted, and then you'd bring him an idea, and then he would say, well, how about if we do this? And you'd go back and change it. Was, it was very creative. And the, the, by and large, the movies that came out of Amblin at that period, you know, uh, Harry and the Hendersons and uh, Batteries Not Included and those kind of movies, are all, they're all the, 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 the cream of the crop of that type of movie. You've done so many creature features. Are you drawn to that uh, particularly, or is it a relief when you do something that doesn't have uh, makeup? No, the, the, the thing is, you, being typed is not fun. I mean, you know, I, I do enjoy making these kind of films, but you know, at a certain point, there's a point of no return where you just go, well, you know, I've really done this before, uh, and you would maybe like to branch out and do something different. And, and I've been able to. I've been allowed to do that. Uh, I, I've made comedies, and I've made some dramas, and I've, made some, uh, I've done some odd things for television. Um, but I, I am very identified with this genre, uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. You know, I don't mind going to a horror movie convention and have, being called a master of horror. It's fine. You know. Um, well, the second Civil War was something that came at a time when you weren't getting offered anything outside of the genre kinds of things, I believe, and it was a total 180 from what you were doing then. Tell me well, about that. Well, that's also one of my most obscure movies. Uh, made for it, HBO. It was made for HBO in 1997, and HBO movies tended to run once or twice and then basically disappear, uh, except in Europe, where almost all of them were released as theatrical features. Uh, and, um, and, and one of the reasons that picture survives is because HBO made prints right. of all these movies, which were then sent to Europe where they could be shown. Otherwise, they would be on, on tape along with all the other stuff that's not going to exist in, in 20 years. Um, and the Second Civil War posits the idea that uh, there's a nuclear war in Pakistan and all the orphans are being sent to other countries and there's a big wave of immigration. Imagine that. Uh, and um, they want to send these orphans to Idaho, and the governor of Idaho decides he doesn't want these 
these orphans because he used to be a liberal and now he's a conservative and, and he wants to please his base. And he says that uh, he's going to block them from coming in. And so it turns slowly into a national crisis which involves different states uh, going up against each other and culminates at the end of the movie, spoiler, uh, in the beginning of the Second Civil War. Now, this seemed fairly fanciful when we, when we made it. But over the years, I've seen the picture in various times in various film festivals, and there's always some aspect of the movie that is so current that it's, again, happening like as a big news story. Uh, and I can't quite account for it, but if you, if you happen to see this picture, which I think you can find on uh, Prime, Amazon Prime, um, it, except for the fact that the TV screens are square instead of wide, it could have been made yesterday. I mean, it's, it's so up-to-date uh, that, and, it's, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a black comedy, basically. Um, and um, I, it's got a great cast, and it was a lot of fun to do, and I had some contretemps with, uh, with HBO about certain aspects of the picture, but overall, I think uh, it, it turned out uh, to be one of, the, one of the, my favorite movies. Well, one of my proudest eras as a producer uh, is Masters of Horror. And one of the reasons is how an unshackled Joe Dante attacked a couple of really great stories. We talked about Homecoming a little bit already, but what's really striking about the Screwfly um, solution is that it's really grim and it kind of lacks the sense of humor that uh, is representative of your work. Well, the Screwfly solution is probably the least funny thing I ever did. And, and the, the reason is the original source material is about a plague that causes men to rape and kill women. And uh, this is a story, it was written by a, actually a female writer writing uh, as a male, uh, which is told in letters. And I had read it a long time ago when I was at New World actually, and I thought, boy, you know, I, I'd like to make this into a movie, it's really powerful stuff. Now, having had actually made it as a movie and realizing how relentlessly depressing it is, uh, I, I realized I could never have made it as a feature film. And one of the great things about Masters of Horror was that I got, the two things that I got to do for Masters of Horror, this one and Homecoming, were things I could never have done anywhere else. I could never have gotten funding. I could never have gotten a theatrical release or a TV movie or anything like that. Nobody would have ever made this material. And, and the, the, the charge of given to all the directors when we were uh, asked to do the show was you, we can't pay you a lot of money and you won't have a lot of time but we will let you do whatever you want you know provided it's in the genre uh, and a lot of people did some really good work on that show and I was very happy to do the Screwfly Solution which again is uh, its misogyny is now so rampant uh, it, it, that that it, it, scenes in the in, in the Screwfly Solution that seemed again kind of absurd, um, women being afraid to sh go shopping because they're being harassed, you know, by construction workers and and all that, and then and then and there's a religious aspect to it where where it becomes almost a religion um, to uh, to do these terrible acts uh, is um, it's it's pretty powerful, and uh, it's, it's, again, fairly obscure. It's not really well-known, and certainly not as well-known as my other amazing story. But um, I think it's, a, I think it's uh, something I'm really proud of. Well, even though you've done a lot of work in the genre, your film is, the films are not necessarily known for brutality. The one that goes there is Screwfly. Well, that's because it's part of the story. I mean, I, I, I was as surprised as anybody else how gruesome it turned out to be. But uh, it's no Takashi McCabe, uh, mind you. But um, it's I, I, you know, it's you could do worse than give it a look. Uh, I, 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 where, where is Masters of Horror currently running? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, it's on some. It's it's running on some streaming channels somewhere. Is it Shutter? Easily is Shutter found. running? I, it's not on Shutter, but uh, I think it's uh, I think it's on Tubi which is one of the streaming services. Well, anyway, the, you know, the, the, the video cassettes are all over the place. But, uh, yeah, it's an amazing one, and it's one of the grimmest ones on there. And uh, we've already done a show dedicated to Nightmare Cinema, so we don't need to retread that. What? We're not going to talk about Nightmare Cinema? We certainly can. Haven't we been talking like. about that every day and every hour and every minute of this entire <laughs> visit? Well, the interesting thing about Nightmare Cinema is you were talking about Richard Matheson, 
who was one of the original uh, writers on the Twilight Zone series and wrote your Twilight Zone movie episode. His son, Richard Christian Matheson, wrote um, amazing stories. He, he also wrote your episode, your segment of Nightmare Cinema. Yeah, and you know, and Nightmare Cinema is something that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Mick, uh, because he had the, uh, the tenacity to just keep going and try to get this thing made in whatever way. It's, it's morphed into various different things over the years. Um, and the fact that we are doing this sort of press tour uh, and promoting it at various festivals, um, is, is, is a pretty impressive achievement, as I think Masters of Horror itself was a pretty impressive achievement. And if it hadn't been watered down into fear itself when it went to the network, uh, I think it would still be running because there are so many directors, certainly the ones that work on, on my, uh, my website, Trailers from Hell, we have a lot of horror movie directors and they are always looking for um, some kind of cover to be able to make the things that they want to make. And I, I think they would all jump at the chance to do uh, another uh, short uh, Masters of Horror series. But Maybe this know. will become the show. You know, we yeah, hope we were sort of Nightmare hoping Cinema that maybe becomes. Nightmare Cinema might have a, a further shelf life. Yeah, exactly. We have time for a couple of questions before we wrap it up from the audience. So uh, do we have anybody? Uh, come on what up. What possible yeah. questions could they have? I mean, we've covered everything. We've explained <laughs> yeah. everything from the beginning of life to... Oh, here we have one right here wearing a black Sabbath t-shirt. Naturally, we're in Italy. Thank you. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank you for the howling that keeps uh, uh, haunting my nightmares. And gift gives that keeps on giving, because it's the <laughs> gift, you know, that's the name of the book that the guy, the gift. And, and give, gives me inspiration every day. Uh, my question is, um, what, what, is your, uh, what was your uh, worst day in the whole experience of making a movie, and what did you learn, fr learn from it? The worst day, boy, there's a lot of them. Um, well, there's, there's things that can happen, like on The Howling, we went to a location and uh, we discovered that we had been booked for the wrong day. And so we had to leave and go to another location where we weren't supposed to shoot that same thing, but we had to adapt it and try to make it work. And that happens a lot. But um, the worst day, the worst day must have been... Uh, it wasn't the day that Chris Columbus brought his parents to the set and discovered that I had changed the ending of, the, of Gremlins completely. Um, what about Explorers? Uh, oh, well, yeah. Explorers had some bad days. Um, I, gu I guess maybe it was the day that I had signed on to do this movie, Explorers, um, and uh, they said, well, you know, it'd be nice if it came out uh, in August, and I and this was like this was October of the of the next of the previous year, and it was it was a complicated movie about kids who fly into space, and uh, I said, well, you know, that's an awful, it's it's really a pretty tight schedule to get all this done by then. And they said, but it, they said, but it would be nice to have it out, wouldn't it? And I said, yeah, yeah, it'd be nice. Well, that meant yes, I'll do it. Uh, yes, it will be out, uh, and so I. We piled on, the script wasn't finished, we were, you know, making up, uh, putting concrete on the sets and the kids were stepping at it and sinking because um, it, was, it, was, it was all so rushed. So we rushed through it, we finally got it to a point where we thought maybe it was going to work in the rough cut, and then the guys who hired me left and went to a different studio. And the new owners said, well, what do we got here? Oh, when is it supposed to come out? Oh, no, 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 we don't want to, put it out now. And I said, you can't put it out now. It's not done. It's a rough cut. He said, doesn't matter. Stop working. Put it out now. This is it. The picture's finished. Now, you got to realize that the incoming people in a studio don't want the previous people's pictures to make money or be successful because it makes them look bad. So the entire slate of movies that Paramount Pictures made in 1985 up to young Sherlock Holmes and many in between were dumped unceremoniously with terrible ad campaigns and no support and not being allowed to be completed uh, by a new administration who just wanted to get their own stuff out. Uh, and so Explorers was released uh, as a rough cut. Uh, and uh, there, was, there were many things that I would have done differently. 
and even though it, I think it, it's uh, on, on, on the whole, it's a nice movie because it's got the kids are good and it's got good special effects and great music and all that. Um, it just isn't quite what I had in mind, and I remember thinking that uh, it would be great to be able to work in an environment where you could be on the same page as your employer through the entire movie. We have time for one more quick question, then we're going to wrap. Come on up. Come on up. Yeah. So, and thank you, everyone, for inviting us here to Luca for this film festival. It's just been an amazing experience. Here you go. Hi. I, I always have this question, and it's a question about the howling. Uh, this movie, you know, it was um, received an award, uh, not an award, a nomination for the Academy Awards in that period of time. And it was competing with an American werewolf in London in the, sa in the same year. So, talking about uh, your film and also John Landis' film, my question is, what idea came first? Uh, you were you were together. You were friends. So it, it seems like you you know very similar topics, subjects, and also you received both an Academy nomination. And also, it was the first time that the that the award for makeup exists, right? Okay. Well, uh, first of all, I think I think Rick Baker may have been nominated, but uh, not, not the Howling was nominated. Uh, they did run a clip of the Howling uh, that year on the Academy Awards at the beginning, which I was very impressed with, uh, because it's the closest I ever got to an Academy Award, except when Interspace won a Best Special Effects Academy Award, which is that's as close as I'll ever get. Um, but as far as the Howling goes, Rick Baker and Rob Bottin, uh, Rick Baker and uh, John Landis had talked about making American Werewolf uh, for years. From the time Landis was 19 From the time old. Landis was 19. That's when he wrote it. And, uh, and it, it just never came together. He never, never got it together. And uh, when it came time to do The Howling, I immediately decided I wanted to have Rick Baker to do it. And so I asked him, and he was intrigued, and we had a meeting. Uh, and he said, I, you know, I'd love, to, I'd love to be able to do this, I have some really cool ideas that I've never been able to use, I, I, you know, and these are obviously were ideas he was working on and thinking he would be using it on John's picture. And so um, we had a, we, he started working on our picture and he did some tests, which were very impressive. And John Landis heard about this development and uh, lo and behold, it, within a very short time, John Landis had funding for his movie. And he called Rick and he said, well, you can't do his movie. You got to do my movie because you promised. And so you got to do my picture and I'm making it. Um, so Rick went off and did his picture. And Rob Bottin, who was, you know, Rick's uh, second, moved up the ranks and took over and uh, did all the rare werewolf stuff uh, for The Howling uh, f with a lot less money, of course, than Rick was going to be able to use. And, um, and, and John's movie did not come out, I think our picture came out first. I know it was finished first because it played the Avorias Film Festival in 1980 before it was released in 1981. Um, and John's picture I don't think came out until later in 1981. Um, they're very different movies. Uh, they happen to have werewolves in them and transformations, but they're, they're really, I think, quite, as John and I have talked about, I mean, they really are quite different movies. He likes his movie better, I like my movie better, but of course, why, why not, of course. And I love them both. <laughs> So um, they, they didn't really hurt each other, but the, the thing was amazing was that year there were all, the, all these other werewolf movies. There was Full Moon High, and there was The Wolfen, and there was uh, another, uh, another couple of pictures, of, uh, uh, Werewolf of Washington. I mean, all these movies suddenly came out, and there were all these werewolves. It was the year of the werewolf, and it, was not, and it was not intended. It wasn't like anybody was copying anybody. It was like they just all happened. Well, I want to thank you, Joe Dante. Thank you, Luca, and the Luca Film Festival, and for our audience today for joining us on Postmortem, and we'll see you the next time. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. 
Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.